The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Don't think, feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger, or you will miss all that heavenly glory. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Nicholas Gregoratis show. This is the second episode of the year. Right now, I hope that your year is in full swing and that you're already acting on all the intentions and goals that you set for yourself. I have an old friend of mine or old acquaintance today as a guest, someone who I believe has had a very similar life path to me. And he and I have a lot in common and I already believe that it was a an excellent conversation that will provide a lot of value to whoever's listening to it. But before we get into that, I want to let you guys know, as it is a jiu-jitsu guest or someone I know through jiu-jitsu and a fellow jiu-jitsu black belt, and I know that a lot of my audience uh, consists of of people who either train in jiu-jitsu or are jiu-jitsu professionals, I wanted to just remind you guys that I have a jiu-jitsu association called subconscious jiu-jitsu. So if you aren't familiar with um, my trajectory through jiu-jitsu, I got my black belt from Roger Gracie in 2008. And then after that, I taught in London for a couple of years and then I left to travel the world. I spent a long time traveling around the world. And while I did that, I was building an association called the Jiu-Jitsu Brotherhood, which became pretty successful. We had a group of schools around the world, but then I had a falling out with my business partner that I ran that with. And so I took several of the affiliates from Jiu-Jitsu Brotherhood and I joined my friend Brent Berniston, who runs the subconscious Jiu-Jitsu headquarters in Los Angeles. I joined with him and we created the Subconscious Jiu-Jitsu Association. Subconscious Jiu-Jitsu is, uh, when we set out to do this, the mandate was we want to make this different to existing Jiu-Jitsu associations. And that's because Brent and I are different. We look at the world in a very different way. We're not bound by a lot of the limitations and, and structures that some of the existing jiu-jitsu associations are. And our primary or our core ideal that this association is built on is we just want to be the best people we can. And we want to share this amazing energy that we have and this amazing tribe that we have. We want to share that with as many people as possible. So... Everyone who's part of the association will tell you we, it's just different. We just have a different vibe. People will say there's a lot of authenticity and there's great instruction and it's just generally good energy around what we're doing. So if you're at a place in your jiu-jitsu journey, if you're a school owner, if you're wanting to be a school owner and you feel that maybe uh, it's time to connect with an association or, or come under the umbrella of an association... Go check us out. It's subconsciousbjj.com. And then you can click on the the link in the navigation menu that says association. And you can find out more about us. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode with Professor Chris Matakas. Enjoy. Hey, brothers. Please welcome to the show Chris Matakas, who is a performance coach and the founder of the Matakas Jiu-Jitsu Academy. Chris, I'm so happy to have you here, brother. Me too. Thank you for having me. It's great to connect. 
it's been a while, my man. It's it's been a long time. I, I think that uh one of the reasons I've been looking forward to this is you and I, if there was like a, a Venn diagram of you and a Venn diagram of me, there would be quite a lot of overlap because we're both we're both of Greek heritage, we're both jiu-jitsu instructors, we're both coaches, we both have a keen interest in philosophy, we're both extremely good looking. I mean, the, <laughs> the, the comparisons just uh, keep going. But anyway, it's, it's just really, it's wonderful to connect with a like-minded individual. Thanks for coming on. Likewise, man. My sincere pleasure. And uh, I'm so glad that everything you're doing is, uh, makes the world a better place. So thank you for being you. Thanks, brother. I'm, that's the only thing I can do is be me. Every time I try to be someone else, it never really works out well. Agreed. Yeah. Chris, tell us what you got going on. You, you're... So you've got a very successful jiu-jitsu academy, but I think an even more important, uh, not more important, but more interesting aspect of you is that you, you've written, how many books is it now? What are we on? Uh, coming up on 13. 13, damn. And most of these, it's my understanding, are themed around the more philosophical, esoteric aspects of jiu-jitsu. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Each one has become a little bit less about jiu-jitsu and a little bit more about our souls and mindset and philosophy and psychology, I think just as the natural progression in my own life unfolds, the, the writing reflects that. Nice. So let me ask you a little bit of a, a broader, bigger question in that case. Where are you on uh, what you believe we're all doing here, what, what our souls are doing here? Oh, dude, I love it. All right. So diving in deep. <laughs> <laughs> Before we uh, hopped on, you saw that I have Ramdas in our living room. And mm -hmm. I really ascribe, as of the last year or so, to his general premise that we are souls that come packaged in these personalities, these bodies, these unique life circumstances to experience a curriculum to help us to continue unfold into whatever it is we're supposed to be. And um, I think for you and I, Jiu-Jitsu was a huge part of that. In the earlier stages of our lives, now we kind of use jujitsu as more of a vehicle for service, and we're exploring these other aspects of coaching and serving people. But I believe it's, you know, I like the Tony Robbins idea that there are no problems, there are only opportunities. And when you really integrate Ram Dass's approach that literally everything is grist for the mill of your awakening, it's like the worse a circumstance is, the better it ultimately serves you and is designed to give you exactly what you need. So that's what I've kind of been holding on to lately. And it's been quite fruitful. What about you? What's your stance? It's not too dissimilar, but you know what I've, what I've realized is no one can ever tell you there's two questions no one can ever really answer truthfully, which is what happens when we die and the meaning of life. So whatever I say, it's, it's a perspective and it's often a, it's a shifting perspective because as I'm exposed to new information, I'm open to changing it. And yeah, I think we're here, these little units of the universal consciousness that's, as you said, you use the word package, which I love, and we're, we're sent here to gather data and transmit it back to the source and to basically have the experience for the source in physical form that it cannot really have itself. And uh, that's kind of where I'm at. But again, it could change. <laughs> <laughs> I've, uh, I've been using the, I guess, imagery lately of, you know how doctors generally have really crappy handwriting that you can't read? Mm -hmm. It's like, 
when you're born, there's a prescription written on your heart and you can't read the writing. And our work is to translate whatever that prescription is, because I don't I don't think you really like create meaning as much as you uncover what you in your essence find meaningful. So I really like the idea of more doing like not manifesting something or creating something, but more so doing the excavation to find out what's already there inside you and then to act accordingly. Mm. I was speaking to a, a Russian guy recently. I was at a a breakfast here in Los Angeles hosted by this woman. It's called, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's called, it's called soul breakfast. And, uh, I was the only non-Russian person there, which was quite interesting for me. And, uh, the rest were these highly intelligent, self-actualized, spiritually evolved, um, people all from Russia, either first generation or second generation. And I was speaking to this one guy who said, he said, the most important question you can ever ask if, if you want anything in life, whether it's success or a great relationship or whatever your goals and visions and aspirations in life are, just keep asking the question, who am I truly? Or what is it that I truly am? And uh, that led me to this understanding. You know, I've, I've been really focused on going, hitting specific levels when it comes to my business and, and my work. and what I realized is that I can't get there or I couldn't get there when I was holding on to a false perception of who I truly was. Uh, there were a lot of small things like resentments and ideals and beliefs that I, you know, kind of artificially imposed on myself. And I just got this overwhelming understanding that I cannot go to the next level while I'm holding on to this baggage or these beliefs about who I'm supposed to be. Uh, and I, I don't know why that just came, came to me when you, when you describe what you, what you just mentioned. That's beautiful, bro. How, how did you go about the process of letting go? It's an instinct. Yeah. It's, it's instinctual. And it's, I, I guess it's not really the process of letting go. That's that to me, I found the most challenging. It's figuring out what needs to be let go of. What are the things that aren't me? What, what is just this negative egoic form? that is either a protection mechanism or a response to a trauma or stems from some sort of root fear or something like that. And the, the letting go is, is less difficult, but it, I mean, it's still a challenge. So that is to, to figure out what is not supposed to be there or what is not serving me or not as who I truly am. That's instinctual. I just, I just really have to follow my gut on that because no one can do that for me, right? No book or course or, anything like that can truly, truly have the subjective experience of what it's like to be me. Yeah, dude, that, that's why I love this idea that life is a single player game, because even as you described at the beginning of this podcast, you and I have so many similarities, but our lives are starkly different. And that prescription on our heart is starkly different. And it, it's like, we have all these external means of comparison, but they're almost comparing the wrong game. And really the only game in town that's worth playing is the one that only you can play. And the fun part is, I guess, uncovering that along the way and kind of to piggyback off of what you just said, when you're holding on to egoic structures, protective or otherwise, you're playing a game that's not really the game written on your heart. And it takes a, a lot of wisdom to be able to play the game uniquely designed for you and not the one that your neighbor's playing. Yeah. 
What do you think the prescription, or and I know you said it's a process of uncovering, but what have you uncovered about your particular prescription? So it's funny, man. I I love nature uh, so much so that I, I'm barely domesticated. And I mm-hmm. apologize to my wife for all the ways in which that manifests around the house. Um, you know, I'm I love being in the mountains and I love being alone in the mountains. And if left to my own devices, I would just be alone in nature nearly all the time. But I recognize that my game is more so to go alone, to tap in, get centered, and really hear what it is that I am and what I'm here to do, and then come back and serve uh, the people around me. Uh, In my head, I always say like, you know, I wish I could just go off to the mountains and never come back. But if I actually had the opportunity to do that, I would come back after a month. And Mm -hmm. my, my unique prescription is finding the balance of filling up while alone in nature and then coming back and giving what I found when I was in nature. And it's always that sort of cyclical experience. Mm, yeah, that's, that's awesome. So I have a difficult question for you, Chris. And Love it. It's coming from a place of, truly a place of curiosity and, and something that I've wrestled with for a long time because I love it, nature as well. In, in particular, I love animals, right? I, I'm, truth be told, I probably love animals more than, than people. <laughs> yeah, the vast majority of the time, at least. And for a long time, it was something in my, I just shut away in my mind. I never even started to, I never even looked at it because it was just too painful to look at. And that was specifically what we do to nature uh, in our, in our domineering conquest of this planet. And I came to the place where, you know, after, after learning a little bit more about nature and, and through things like documentaries on, on TV and YouTube and, and books and things like that. I saw a side of nature, which I found to be honest, truly quite terrifying and pretty ugly, which is, I mean, we all know it's, it's, we all know about the food chain, right? But if you really look at it, that's basically all or a huge part of nature is just everything is trying to kill and eat everything else or stop from being killed and eaten by something else. And you know, you hear the story, Richard, I think Richard Attenborough, he actually used this particular example as a rationalization for his atheism. And he was talking about how when, when people ask him if he believes in God, he says there's a, there's a particular, I think it's a fly or a, some sort of flying insect that exists. I don't know if it was in Africa or the subcontinent. And he was saying how this fly lays eggs in the eyes of children that then eat away at its eyes to the larvae eat away at the, at these children's eyes and these children subsequently go blind. And he says, he finds it very difficult to believe in a God that would create something that had those types of things within it. And I'd be very interested to hear your response to that or or your, your perspective on that. Like having seen or understanding the true brutality and harshness of nature How do you still maintain your intense and in-depth love of it? Dude, that's a great question. I kind of ascribe to the Alan Watts lens and, you know, he uses the example of, you know, imagine like uh, aliens came to earth and all they saw was a bunch of rocks and then they leave and they come back and then now there's people all over and their interpretation would be, oh, this planet peoples 
in the same way an apple tree apples. It's by the earth being the earth, it's manifesting itself in this way. And I really like the idea that it's all one thing. So if we look at like our bodies, we have a million different cells, whether human or bacterial, working at any moment. And through one lens of magnification, these look like separate entities, all fighting and you know fighting for resources and consuming each other. And then you zoom out and you see it as part of a larger whole. It's like, oh, that's just Nick or that's just Chris. That's a human being. And I think Earth is the same way. Like I love the idea of viewing it not so much as nouns, but as verb. Like the Earth lions, the Earth flies, the Earth tigers. And these are just expressions of whatever the earth is, that that's what it does. And I kind of view it as from, say, the human level, we see such tremendous suffering, but from maybe take one step back, maybe a 10,000 foot view, it's just this transfer of energy into various forms. And it's this constant dance that is brutal on one level, but simultaneously beautiful on another. So I think it's just for me, it's like, that's what the earth does. And it is both beautiful and horrifying. I don't know if that properly answers the question. Yeah, no, that's a superb answer. I, I really appreciate that. It's it's one of the ones that I've adopted similar perspectives and they definitely do make me feel better. I wonder sometimes if it's just, again, a function of my my own mind trying to make itself feel better or, or if it <laughs> yeah. really is valid. I mean, we all we all have things that we just tell ourselves to, you know, allow us to not go fucking nuts, but it does yeah. make sense to me. What you've said does make sense. And, the, and I, I like to think that there is some truth to that. So that, that would be a question I would actually, if there was a, an anthropomorphized God one day that I could sit down and have a conversation with, or at least if the universe took the form of a human or an entity that I could interact with through language, that would be one of the questions I would want to ask it. So I think for you, my next question is, are there any questions that you would want to ask the universe if you could sit down and have a conversation with it? Man, you ask great freaking questions. Uh, <laughs> admittedly, at this stage in the game, I don't think I would ask any questions. I would just, to the degree that I'm capable, express gratitude for the opportunity to be. I think I'm in this phase of my development, I'm really in a place of, I don't know, I guess I'm to the degree that I can be, I'm so aware of my ignorance and so aware of how many things are going right that if anything were slightly different, everything would be going wrong. Um, uh, I, I'm just really grateful to get to play the game of being me and to get to play the game of being a human being experiencing this life, I would just, I would do my best to express gratitude because it's a freaking miracle. Yeah. I, I think you're definitely onto something there. Gratitude. I believe I've mentioned it on my show many times before. I believe it's one of the highest vibrating frequencies that is available for us to access on this planet. So I'm, I'm big into that, but okay. Let me, let me alter that question a little bit. Have you had any of those questions in the past and were they answered? Oh, dude. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, it was always the, you brought it up earlier. Like what's the meaning of life? And I, I kind of, 
I went through a heavy Jordan Peterson, Carl Young phase, and then a heavy Ram Das phase. And I think it's like, all right, so kind of like if you use the Jordan Peterson maps of meaning model, it was like, all right, so science tells us what is, it's a place of things. And religion and all of the various forms tell us how to act. But the why, that, that's up to you. So maybe like 10 years ago, I would have asked, like, you know, why am I here? What's the meaning of life? And, and maybe the my modern response to that would be the, oh, there, there, there is a why. It's written on my heart and it's my work to uncover it. So it probably would have been the, the old, you know, what's the meaning of life thing. But then at this stage in the game, I feel, as you said earlier, I am the only one who can answer it. And maybe that's one of the reasons why I value nature so much is because nothing is vying for my attention and I can get quiet enough to actually read the prescription in a way that I just can't around people. Sure. So uh, that was going to be part of my next question, which is, this work of uncovering, like what, what are some tips that you, or what are some ways you do that? And obviously spending time in nature is one of them. Are, are there any others? Yeah, I have a, it's funny. I have a mentor who is a brilliant man. He, he is also a performance coach. He's at the level that I hope to be at someday. Like he, his name is Dr. August Lemming. He's worked with the uh, women's Olympic crew team. He works with a bunch of banks and division one sports teams. Like He's as high as it gets in this field. And he, uh, it's funny, his job, he always says, is like to make my life harder, to make me experience more negative emotion. <laughs> and uh, one of the ways in which he, he did that for me was just really demand that I meditate 20 minutes a day. And not even meditate, but sit still 20 minutes a day. And that was something that I used to do out of obligation and feeling like, oh, that's the right thing to do to live a mindful life, go meditate. And it started out as work. And then it kind of became more like play and almost like a means of protection against how busy our lives are. Because dude, like, I am sure you can relate to this. Like, I don't have kids yet, but I am blown away at how busy I am. And I'm I don't feel like I'm doing that much, but there's always a litany of things to do that require a tremendous amount of time, whether with the books, with the business, with the coaching business, with my relationship with my wife, with my health, with jujitsu, like so on and so forth. And for me, there's so many things that I lose my attention to. I've found that nature and a mindfulness practice of sitting 20 minutes a day, which I don't do every day, but I do a lot and reading every day they tend to keep me in my center. They tend to help me not get distracted by all the things vying for my attention. So I think they're the big three, nature, mindfulness practice, and reading. So when I am attending to the thoughts in my head, there are at least thoughts I want to have in there. Yeah, those are all, I mean, mine are very similar. I do those three. I don't do the nature one as much as I should. I'm I'm really making an effort to, to increase that, but I would add an additional one onto there, which uh, I think you'd get a lot out of. You probably do it already, but actually writing. And when I say writing, I don't mean with, with a keyboard. I mean, taking a, an implement like a writing stylus or implement or something and, and sitting down and writing something onto a page. Uh, in fact, right now, as we're talking, what I'm doing is I'm writing the questions that come to my mind that I have for you. And even that would be enough of my full for the day. I just, I found lately, I really need to put pen to paper and there's something very 
I find very healing, very centering about that. And uh, I don't think I'm ever going to stop doing that. Dude, that that's beautiful. And bro, I swear to God, right next to me is the book I'm reading right now and my notebook on top. Because when I say reading, I literally am doing exactly what you do, where it's kind of bouncing back and forth between the reading and the journaling. And I do that for an hour every morning and it is sacred time. Sacred time. Yeah. It's, you speak about not having kids, man. And you know, like I don't have kids either. And you know, you know, people, when when you meet people and they say things like you'd be a great father, right? Like I'm sure you've heard that a million times and man, I say this with no arrogance. I know I would be a great father. I have no doubt, not one single doubt in my mind that I would be a wonderful dad. But honestly, man, again, I'm, I'm the same as you. Like I have a lot to do. I don't like using the word busy because I feel that busyness is, is something in modern life that's been mistakenly imbued with the, with badge of honor status. And I don't actually, <laughs> yes. I, I don't think busyness is when, when I'm overly busy, I, I know I'm doing something wrong and I have to step back and, and say like, okay, what's, what systems are not working properly? Where am I not allocating my time and energy efficiently? So what I say instead is I have a lot to do. There's a lot going on, right? There's, there's many moving parts to my life and this time in the morning, <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but man, my morning routine is three hours long now. It's literally That's incredible. Yeah, That's, it's, you should be embarrassed for that. That's a gift. I, I guess embarrassment is it's almost like, I know there's not, not everyone out there can do that right now at this stage in their yeah. lives, you know? And, and to be fair, I, I, I did a lot and sacrificed a lot so that I could have that time. And the, the kids thing, that is probably my biggest reservation is man, when, when you have, when you have kids, unless you're incredibly wealthy, you're not going to be able to have three hours every morning to yourself to stretch and meditate and, you know, ask difficult questions and get in your body and whatever it is that I'm doing in the, during that time. And that's my biggest resistance there uh, with the kids thing. What, what are your thoughts on that? Dude? I mean, uh, so I'm definitely right there with you and I tend to view life seasonally. And I think in this current season of my life, I am very grateful for my morning routine and I protect it. I don't schedule anything during it. No amount of money could make me trade my routine for it. Back to the kind of Ramdas idea. When I think of what is the curriculum for me, barring tragedy, I, I do believe my personal curriculum is to start a family with my wife. And I, um, and dude, by the way, you would be a freaking fantastic father. Right, I thank no you, doubt. brother. So and would you. I appreciate that. And I think so. And I'm really excited for that new curriculum. And I think it's one of those things where in this unfolding process of whatever it is that we're becoming, I believe that there are many vehicles you can use to manifest that unfolding. And I think it's just the curriculum changes, the morning routine of meditation and stretching and reading Tony Robbins becomes a morning routine of mindfulness and changing the diapers and gratitude for the small moments and practicing service and compassion. So I think it's like, it's easy for me to say not being a father, but if, if that's part of your path, then it's the exact curriculum you need and the lessons you need will be found on that path. And if it's not, it's not. And I I really don't think one is better or worse as a culture. We certainly have like a hierarchy of how we think you're supposed to use your time, but that's back to the 
single player game idea. It's like only you can know. Um, one of the one of the simplest ways I ever heard it described was from a really good friend who he's a great father of three kids, and he said. You know, obviously, as dudes, we never really had an urge to have kids. But for me, it was when I loved my wife so much, I wanted that love to extend beyond the two of us. And that was the damn best answer I have ever heard. That may be the only real reason worth having kids. Wow, that is powerful. That is truly powerful. Uh, You know, I've got two cats who... I fucking adore these cats. It, it is embarrassing. <laughs> I will admit straight up. It is fucking embarrassing how much I love these cats. It's embarrassing how much money I spend on them, how much time I spend with them. And yeah, you know, the thing with kids, like I, I get, if I love cats this much, I can imagine how much I'd love children of my own. But that comes with this other, there's this other part to it, which is I realize that I'm an extraordinarily sensitive human being. Mm-hmm. I've always, I've always been the way and I've accepted it. I used to be, it used to be something that I was ashamed of. And I tried to like masculinize out of me, you know, cause that's what the world yes. teaches you as a man is, is to not be sensitive. And what I've realized is, man, I don't know if someone like me having kids is even a good idea because seeing my kids in pain or struggle, or like if something tragic happened to them, I don't think I could handle it, to be honest, Chris. I don't think I could handle it. That's the honest truth. There are things in life that I, that I can handle and that I, you know, I can step up, with, step up and deal with. But having that level of vulnerability, and I'm, again, I'm someone who considers myself, you know, I'm not one of those dudes who like never displays vulnerability and puts on an armor and like, you know, like a front or a mask. I'm not like that. I, I think of myself as, as a pretty vulnerable dude. And I don't know if I can handle that level of vulnerability, to be honest, man. I just, I just don't know if I have it in me. Dude, I, I definitely hear you. There's, that is the sort of double-edged sword of being that sensitive. And I equate sensitivity, right? Like it's a, what is it? it, it it's a sense. It's the same sense as like a hearing or a, a feeling or a tasting. It's a touching of that, which is external to you. And to the degree that you're sensitive, it gives you a wide variability in the range of experience that you can have, like incredibly high highs and incredibly low lows. And I don't know, just as a, a distant friend to you, bro, I have, if any tragedy happens often, unfortunately, and it sucks, but there are people who have much fewer faculties than you do who have handled it skillfully. So at least from the outside, know that I have unlimited faith in your ability to respond to whatever arrives on your path. Yeah. What a, what a lovely compliment. Yeah. I appreciate that, man. I think another, another, I really liked your, your uh, comment about how life is, is seasonal and look, you know, my life right now, this might change, but I actually think it's, going to even continue to get better because I'm learning more and more about myself and how I work and what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. But my life right now is very good. I'm a very happy person. I'm very content. Happy is probably not the right word. I'm very content, right? I I love life. I have a great lust and passion for life and I'm using my gifts to their fullest. And I'm, I'm, I'm just thoroughly enjoying my life. Now there is a theory that 
you'd, I'd enjoy it even more with children, right? Like that's, that's what I'm told by some people. Like that's the promise. That's the rebuttal for, for not having kids is like, Oh, if you think you're happy now, just wait till you have kids. But I also know that it could very easily go the other way, right? Like there's yeah, several people, yeah. there's several people I know that have like, a buddy of mine took me aside once and he was like, Nick, bro, listen, don't have kids. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not what, it's not what everyone's telling you it is. Right. And I guess for me right now, it's a, it's a gamble. I consider, I, I keep considering like that gamble because it could make life better, but it could make life worse. And to be honest, life is great right now. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's another uh, thought that goes through my mind enough on that topic. Chris, I want to know <laughs> wh- wh- what or who has made the biggest impact on your life over the last year. Well, dude, over the last year, the first answer that comes to mind is Ram Dass. Um, I've obviously I've, you know, watched any documentary or video I could get my hands on. I've listened to the be here now podcast, probably every episode of read most of his books. I, I think it came from a place of, if we kind of use a simple dichotomy of Western teachings and Eastern teachings, I spent so much time in the West in like the focus on achievement model. And then I kind of recognized kind of to touch, to put a period at the end of the sentence about the kids that the quality of your life basically comes down to the quality of which you can live your life. And it doesn't matter what the vehicles or modalities are like at all. Like, it's that idea that the kingdom of God is all around, but man cannot see it. And it's what the Easterns say of, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. And after enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. Like, dude, I, I've really recognized because you have all these material goals and we know that you achieve it. It feels good for a second. And then you move on to the next goal. It's the way we're built. But I started to recognize that like, yo, I would get upset if I couldn't go on a hiking trip because I had to do some responsibilities, say at home or in my business. But if I'm really present and there and fully engaged in the moment, an Excel spreadsheet is not that much different than walking through a park. Like if you're fully in it and involved and deeply present, everything kind of becomes the same. And I recognize that I I had so many like limiting beliefs around being that I just found that the things that Ram Dass was saying just connected at a deep level. And I dove in and I think he has given me permission to accept my life exactly as it is with tremendous gratitude and not fight against my experience so much. What about you? Well, um, Chris, honestly, I, I don't have an answer for that question right now. But I want to discuss your answer a little bit more because it's, it's a phenomenal one. It really is that that idea that it's almost it comes back to a jujitsu analogy that I wrote an article many years ago saying that there are no bad positions in jujitsu, right? Because for those listening who don't train martial arts or don't train jujitsu in particular, jujitsu is built on this presupposition that there's certain positions that are better than others. This it's called positional hierarchy. And that you should always try to be in the better ones and not be in the worse ones. And what I realized is that's actually a huge limitation and that what you should do instead of trying to train yourself to only look for these particular positions, you should just realize that any position can be a good one, even one that's perceived as negative. So if you know that um, 
that submission, the buggy choke that's becoming popular, right? Which is yes. the submission from when you're on the bottom of side mount. I mean, 10 or 15 years ago, no one would have ever even perceived <laughs> that as being possible. Do you know what I mean? Or like, kipping. Kipping would have looked foolish. I don't even know what that is. Uh, the thing the leg lockers do for mount where you just kick your legs violently to establish a leg entanglement. Oh, I see. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah I, I, so yeah, I didn't even know about that one. So this idea that you've just described of changing your consciousness to the point where even mundane tasks can be enjoyed, right? And, and as you said, there's no difference between really at the, at the heart of it, there's no difference between an Excel spreadsheet and taking a hike in the far, forest. Yes and no, right? <laughs> yes. And I, I yes and I, no. I, yeah. yeah. I, t- I totally understand what, but I, I really do get that because all of us have to do. So the one way you can look at it is think about trying to create a life in which you never have to do anything you don't enjoy, which I think there's something to be said for that to at least having that as an ideal, right? At, at least keep, because it's, it's, it's impossible. You're never going to have a life where there's total ease, total comfort, total enjoyable and enriching activities. It's just, it's just not possible just by virtue of the fact that we're human and that moving through this experience requires for most of us, we need to earn money or make money. We have physical needs that have to be attended to. We have social needs, our part we have to play in society, like creating this perfect little oasis of a life. I don't think it's possible. I, however, still believe that you should do your best, right? Or, and, and try to make your environment and your, your schedule and your relationships and the people around you as conducive to, to love and joy and peace and all these things as possible. But then we have to combine that with what you've just said, which is change your consciousness to a place where more and more things are heaven for you. And it's actually a big breakthrough I've just had. It's something I'd considered or or had a thought about a long time ago, but it's just been ratified hearing you describe it. And I need to revisit that. So thank you so much for that, Chris. I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. And um, a breakthrough within this that, was incredibly useful for me was uh, I'm sure you've heard the line a thousand times from the Bhagavad Gita that you have the right to your labor, but not the fruits of your labor. And when that finally, it's like, you have to hear, it's like, you have to see. I've never heard that. I've never heard that. Okay, great, great. So it's like the same idea of as a consumer, you have to see something like 16 times before you purchase. Well, apparently I had to hear and read that line like a thousand times before it clicked. So you have the right to your labor, but not the fruits of your labor. And I watched how my life was so transactional, how chores were something to do so I could go do something else. And I had all these little breakthroughs where I would do the dishes and just observe my mind. And I would watch how I was trying to get done the dishes so I could go somewhere. And Whenever you're attached to the fruits of the labor, while not experiencing those fruits, they're suffering. So I started to just play this game of like, oh, when I'm doing laundry, I'm just going to do the laundry. And when I'm doing dishes, I'm just going to do the dishes and not use them as a bridge to somewhere else. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't find anything that I didn't mind doing when I was just doing it in and of itself. And the, the irony, so I love this, by the way, I've just written this down and that is going to, that is going to shape my, 
my um, perceptions and the way I move through the world from this point forth. You know, the, the irony of that is, is when you adopt that mindset, your, the fruits of your labor become better anyway, because your labor is of a higher quality, right? Like yes. the dude is just like, just working to get something done just so that he can get the paycheck or whatever it might be. His work is usually shit because he's not present. He's not focused on it. He's not giving attention and care and, and presence. Whereas the guy who's like, I'm just doing this for the love of it. Like, I'm sure you've seen that documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Have you watched yeah, that? Yeah, that's beautiful. That's what comes to mind is this guy, like all he cares about is making great sushi. And that's why he can charge $500 for a spot at his restaurant each night. It's, mm-hmm. it's because his sushi is imbued with the, that exact thought that you've just described. Chris, that is as much as my brain can take. It takes a lot of, <laughs> a lot of processing power to, to stay on a level, to stay on the level with a guy like you. And I, I really enjoyed that conversation. It, it was lovely, truly wonderful. If the listeners want to find out more about you and want to read some of your books, where's the best place for them to go? Sure. Uh, just connect with me on Facebook. My name, Chris Matakis, or on Instagram, uh, Chris Matakis BJJ. And then if you want to learn more about the books and my coaching, you can go to chrismatakis.com. Awesome, Chris. Thank you so much for your time, brother. Thank you. I love our conversations, man. And I wish you the absolute best. I'm sure you guys are the same in that when you find someone who has had a similar life path to you and has a similar set of experiences and more importantly, philosophies to you, it just helps you feel a little less alone in the world and uh, a little more sane. And that's the feeling I get when I speak to Chris. He's such a good guy. I've never heard a bad word said about him and I'm sure you can hear it in his demeanor. He's also written some amazing books that fuse uh, jiu-jitsu insights and philosophy. I urge anyone interested in either of those to pick up one of his books or at least one of his books and uh, go support the guy. He's a, he's a real gem of a human being. I hope you guys are enjoying the show this year so far, and I will be back in a week with another episode. Until then, remember, we're all alone in this together. 